you know, I look around the room and I'm grateful for what I see. And that's a lot of faces smiling back at me. Because you guys know this is something I do about every three or four months. And every time it feels like it's something I've just done for the first time. So thank you for that. I'm grateful to be here. And uh, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together this morning. I thank you for this place. I thank you for these people that you've brought together. And most of all, Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word. So this morning, Lord, as you use me, um, a a sinful, humble, um, honored person to share your word with your people, I pray, Lord, that you will use me to your glory. I pray that the words that I speak will be the words that you would have the people here to hear. And I pray, Lord, that despite my weaknesses, you will use your word to build them up, to strengthen them, to grow them. Lord, that our, know, our knowledge of you and our love for you might continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. So, as we have slowly worked our way through the book of James, <laughs> we will continue doing that today. Um, for those of you who are new with us this morning, um, our pastor has been working through Matthew and then once a month, myself or, or Harold will preach. And when we're preaching, we work in James. So this isn't the continuation of, of Matthew as we have been doing. But as we've been working through this book, um, we've seen that it's a call to believers to live a life of faith. The central theme of this incredible book is simply this. True faith results in good works. From the beginning, James has illustrated the importance of living a life that demonstrates that faith is more than an intellectual understanding. Faith, true faith, is alive, and it impacts every area of our lives. As we looked at chapter 1, we talked about the importance of holding steadfast in our faith. We talked about what it means to be steadfast in our faith, which is to remain true to our Lord in times of, of trial or temptation. We talked about how to remain steadfast by resisting sin. And even mortifying it. Some of you may have remembered the uh, illustration I used there of the snakes. How badly I hate them. How badly they scare me. If I was armed with a shotgun with four rounds and I saw a snake, it took one one shot to kill the snake. Guess how many it got? Four. Exactly. And then I loaded real quickly in case he had friends around. But that's how we're to deal with sin. It's not something to be played with. We are to mortify it. And then the reward for remaining steadfast, which was an eternity spent in the presence of God. We moved on to chapter 2, where we learned that faith doesn't show favoritism. We grow, as we grow and mature in our faith, we understand that God did not extend grace to us because of what we could offer him. Or what it was that uh, we had this super intelligence or this ability. That wouldn't be grace at all, would it? God extended grace to us, and we should treat our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same respect. We need to treat them as they are, children of the king. And we need to not pay attention to what their financial situation might be, what their home situation might be. We need to treat them as equals. And that's often not easy to do. We have a tendency sometimes to look down on other people. We also learned about the importance of um, works, specifically the work of repentance and demonstrating that our faith is a legitimate saving faith. And the last time we opened this book, we started chapter 3, and Harold shared with us about the importance of self-control, specifically controlling our tongues. He demonstrated how such a small portion of our bodies can have such a huge impact on us. It reveals our lack of self-control and exposes our hypocrisy, 
especially when you use that tongue to both bless our Lord and Savior and then right immediately turn right around and curse or talk bad about the people that are created in His image. So today we're going to wrap up chapter 3. And we're going to do that by contrasting wisdom. Worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Let's look at James 3, 13 to 18 together. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now a foundational belief at PRC is that the word of God is breathed out. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As a result, we strive, whether it's myself, Travis, Harold, any other person that we have in this pulpit, strives to do one thing. And that is that we try to strive to teach Scripture so that it can be applied to our lives. So consequently, as we dive into Scripture together, I pray you're going to see two theological passages, or two theological truths in this passage. Okay? Are you ready to document theological truths? Right? We know these can be long, but these two aren't. Number one, worldly wisdom, bad. It doesn't have to be long to be deep, does it? Theological lesson number two, godly wisdom, good. That's about as deep as I get. All right, so James begins this morning's passage with the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And as is his practice, he immediately answers it with his next sentence. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The wise are those who exercise wisdom in meekness. Once again, James is not allowing his hearers or his, his audience to just be comfortable with being wise. But he's calling them to act, to demonstrate wisdom by the lives that they live. Just as he challenged the legitimacy of their faith that didn't have actions, he's challenging the legitimacy of wisdom that doesn't glorify God or isn't put into action. So let's start at the beginning. What is wisdom? Now, if you're not asked, I bet you could probably define what wisdom is pretty well. However, it's also one of those words that when we get asked, we all know it. But when somebody says, hey, Jason, what's wisdom? My response would be, uh... Right? It's not an easy thing to just, to, just, uh, to, to just get out there. So the first thing we need to know is that wisdom and knowledge are two different things. Knowledge is a collection of facts and ideas that we've gathered as we move through life, whether it's by experience, by investigation, by education, self-study, whatever it might be. You gather these facts, you gather these ideas, that collection is knowledge. That's your base of knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to take that knowledge and put it into practical action. 
It's the ability to identify the, the, the knowledge that you have as being truly trustworthy, as being something that should guide and direct the way that you behave. Theologian J.I. Packer beautifully illustrates the differences between knowledge and wisdom. And this is what he says. When driving, it's important to make appropriate responses to the constantly changing scene, to exercise soundness of judgment regarding speed, distance, and braking. If you're going to drive well, you must not fret over the highway engineer's decision to put an S-curve or what the thinking was behind the idea of red, yellow, and green lights. Being wise doesn't mean we understand everything that is going on because of our superior knowledge, but that we do the right thing as life comes along. Dr. Packer demonstrates that wisdom involves action. Taking knowledge and applying it to our lives. With anything that involves action, it can be used for both good and evil. And that brings us to our first theological truth. Anybody remember what it was? Worldly wisdom, bad. You guys are great. <laughs> Travis gives you much longer things to remember. Just remember who gives you the short ones. Okay, so assuming this theological truth is what they in D.C. would call a true truth. Did anybody else know that you had to put an adjective in front of the word truth to make it true? I didn't. But assuming that this is true, worldly wisdom is bad, we need to know what it looks like, do we not? The whole purpose for teaching the word is to give you something that you can apply to your lives here. So it's important for us to be able to discern or identify worldly wisdom and to avoid being deceived by it or misled by it. So to do that, we're going to answer three questions. Question number one, what are the characteristics of worldly wisdom? Question number two, where does worldly wisdom come from? And question number three, what are the fruits or manifestations of worldly wisdom? We can see all the answers to these questions in verses 14 to 16. In verse 14, verses 14 and 15, we see the characteristics of godly wisdom. Those are bitter, bitter jealousy, selfish, the fact that it's unspiritual, and that it's demonic. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on James, describes bitter jealousy as harsh zeal. He goes on to say that those who harbor better bitter jealousy, and I quote, could not stand to see others in possession of the positions or influences they so desired. They experienced an inner frenzy at what they saw and set themselves to subvert it. So those who are filled with bitter jealousy have got to be on top. They have got to have that position. They've got to have that authority. They've got to have that recognition. And Hughes tells a story that illustrates the significance of bitter jealousy. And I'm going to share that with you because I think this story, when I looked at it, I was like, wow. But that, I could see the reality in it. So there's a city. There's two men who live in that city. One was envious and the other was covetous. The ruler of the city sent for them and said he wanted to grant them one wish each with this provision. The one who chose first would get exactly what he asked for, while the other man would get exactly twice what the first man had asked for himself. The envious man was ordered to go first. He immediately found himself in a quandary. He realized that he wanted to ask for something great for himself. But he knew if he did, the other guy would get twice as much. So that puts him in a bad spot, right? This guy's envious. He has to have, he's got to be on top. So he thinks and he says to himself, what am I going to do? And he thought and he thought and then he gave his answer. And he said, 
I wish one of my eyes to be gouged out. (laughs) Beware of jealousy. This is a story. It probably isn't true, but it's probably not too far off. The spirit of jealousy will wreck you. Be on guard against it. Selfish ambition is not a whole lot better. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Ambition is simply a desire to achieve a particular end. In Matthew 5, 6, we can read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Based on the meaning of our words today, you could substitute the words hunger and thirst for that they're ambitious for. It would read something like this. Blessed are those who are ambitious for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You remember whenever um, Joe read us that passage, how are we to go about seeking wisdom? We're to search for it. We're to seek it as as seeking silver or as seeking jewels. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious to be righteous. However, selfish ambition is where it's sinful. It's unspiritual which means that it's against or opposed to the spirit. And that's the case when we pervert ambition. When we pervert or twist even just a little bit, any God-given trait, we turn them from something that glorifies God to something that serves ourselves. And in doing so, we make those attributes unspiritual. We turn good spiritual traits given to us by God into evil traits that stand opposed to them. And finally, just to show us how bad worldly wisdom is, James describes it as demonic. For something to be demonic, it means that it has to be of or from the devil. Worldly wisdom is not something to be flirted with. As with all evil, we are called to flee from it. Not walk away, not ignore it, flee from it. When you flee from something, you take an active effort and you run. As a police officer, I can tell you what it looks like when somebody flees from something. Right? I go to do a car stop. You've got a warrant that's going to land you in prison. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to flee. And I'm going to pursue you. And when I was younger, I might have caught you. However, the point is the same. Flee from worldly wisdom as though you have a warrant and it's looking to lock you up. Our enemy, the devil, is looking for those he can devour. And this is one way that he can use to do that. So don't be tempted by worldly wisdom. It may initially seem sweet. You may eventually, initially benefit from it. But eventually, the effects will be felt. So question two, where does worldly wisdom come from? Worldly wisdom, according to verse 15 of our passage, is earthly and demonic. Worldly wisdom is a result of us applying our knowledge base based on the wisdom of the world. Almost like a filter that says, okay, this is what I know. This is what I've been told about how the world works. So I'm going to take that knowledge. I'm going to run it through that filter. And this is going to be the results. The wisdom that is based on what man has deduced from the world around him without consideration of the truths of God listed in Scripture. Worldly wisdom comes from the heart. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all things. 
And brothers and sisters, it applies to us too. Even as believers, our hearts are still deceitful because we have not been entirely sanctified yet, have we? We have to be on guard against this. Worldly wisdom comes from the heart and worldly wisdom comes from the mind of fallen man. As Hughes says, worldly wisdom is radically evil because it comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. All right, so now we understand the characteristics of worldly wisdom and where it comes from. So let's turn to our next question. What are the fruits of worldly wisdom? What are the manifestations? What does it look like? Again, we see the answer to, the scripture, uh, to that question in Scripture in verse 16. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, you may be able to conceal your jealousy and your selfishness for a little while, but it's going to come out. If it's in your heart and you're not working to mortify it, it's going to come out. And it's going to manifest itself in division and in vile practices. Now, as we've already seen, the focus on self is what makes ambition evil. Examples of selfish ambition can be seen all around us. For example, in the workplace. When you are willing to compromise on your standards even just a little bit in order to advance yourself, you're exercising this ambition. You're exercising selfish ambition. Now, we might try to justify it by saying, well, if I have more money, then I can give more to God, right? So we're willing to compromise a little bit over here so we can get this job so we can give more money to God. Does that make sense to anybody else? You know what? I'm not the first person to say it. And in order to quote the great Chris Carter of NFL fame, come on, man! Really? That's what you think? Be honest with yourself. Don't let your heart deceive you. Do you desire the promotion for the glory of God or for your own sense of pride and status? If you're truly striving to be promoted in order to glorify God, why are you willing to set aside your principles to do so? We need to be honest with ourselves in all areas of life. And unfortunately, that same selfish ambition exists among church leaders. In chapter 3, verse 1, James said that we should not all teach I believe Harold addressed this whenever he taught last time. We shouldn't all teach because those who teach are going to be held to, a, to judge by a stricter standard. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 2, that we all stumble in many ways. For teachers, pride can be a big stumbling block. Perhaps that's why James says that not all should do it. I know very well what he's talking about. Being a teacher... Comes, you have a lot of responsibility, but you also have a lot of respect for the people that you're teaching. And that can puff a person up. So for me personally, that's something that I have to be very careful about. Um, every time I open the Word of God, I have to set aside my pride and say, Lord, just show me what you'd have me do here. If I ever try to do this out of pride, shut my mouth. Because this has got to be the Word of God and not me. I am nowhere near qualified to do that. So people hold you on high regard, and that's why there are false teachers in the church. The problem existed in Paul's day, and it continues today, that people teach out of selfish motives. Beware. If you sit under a teacher, and you'll, you'll know, eventually he'll, be, he'll hide it for a while, but eventually you'll know. If this person is, person is teaching for selfish gain, it's time to flee. It's time to get out of there. 
Selfish ambition can also be seen among members of the church, just in case you guys thought it was just us that had to worry about this. It can be seen when they're willing to create division in order to get their way. Whether it's getting the pastor to teach on their prep topic or getting the worship leader to sing the kind of music they like. If they're causing division, that is selfish ambition and it's sinful. So if that's you, not that I've seen any of it here, check yourself. James identifies the behavior of those acting out of selfish ambition in the final clause of verse 14. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Those who are acting out of selfish ambition boast in their accomplishments and claim to walk in God's wisdom. This morning, I'm going to tell you a brief little story here. This morning I was checking my email. And there's a young man in Washington, D.C., an outstanding young man. I think a lot of him. And um, he sent me an email after listening to one of my messages. And he asked me some questions about it. So we've been corresponding back and forth. And the last time I talked to him was in January. And I felt really bad because I hadn't responded. So like March 1st, two days after, or two months after he wrote to me, I responded back to him. And in his response, and I happened to open it this morning as I was you know, going over my message and making sure I was ready. And he gave me some information that has now made its way into this message. So I'm going to ask you guys to open your Bibles with me, please, to um, Acts chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading together in verse 9. This passage, I believe, provides an excellent example of somebody who's willing to put themselves forward based on selfish ambition. And uh, I just want to share that with you guys and and go over it a little bit. So beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, He was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter's response was quick and straightforward. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you, though you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He could have very easily said bitter jealousy, couldn't he? That's exactly where Simon was. To push yourself into the spotlight, to show off your spirituality in a holier-than-thou mode is sinful, even demonic. 
These acts result in disorder, and God calls them vile. Vile is a strong word. It is to be morally despicable or abhorrent. This is the type of behavior that God abhors. God hates this type of behavior. Woe to false teachers and those who walk in worldly wisdom, perverting the truth of God's word for their selfish gain. That's the bad news. Now we're going to go to our second theological truth. Godly wisdom is good. Now, as we've seen, worldly wisdom is bad. We want to avoid it. And instead, we want to live our lives in keeping with godly wisdom. Dr. Packer has a little bit to add here. He says, to live wisely, you must be clear-eyed about people and life, seeing it as it is, and then responding with a mind dependent on the wisdom of God. So to ensure that we are actually walking in godly wisdom, we need to answer some more questions. Question one, what are the characteristics of godly wisdom? Question two, how does godly wisdom manifest itself? Question three, where does godly wisdom come from? These kind of sound familiar, don't they? And because we want to live according to it, we're going to answer a fourth question, which is how do we acquire godly wisdom? So before we look at the list of characteristics, let's consider how godly wisdom is exercised. In verse 13, we see that a wise man shows his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, meekness might be considered a characteristic here, but I want to look at it on its own first. What does it mean to exercise wisdom in meekness? Turning again to the Beatitudes, we find in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In an article on the, top, on the topic of meekness that he wrote for Tabletop Magazine, Reverend Ken Jones, referred to the referring to that beatitude, said this, The reason these characteristics and virtues are bestowed or given is because they are not naturally possessed by the recipients, nor are their recipients in themselves able to produce these qualities. Meekness is not a trait that we naturally possess. Pride is a trait, a trait we naturally possess, but weakness is not. If we're acting in meekness, it is because the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do so. Jones continues, Contrary to what many people may think, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humility and submission to God. If you're acting in meekness, you're not doing it, you're not doing something just because you can. You're setting aside your own interest and you're doing something because A, it glorifies God, or B, it edifies somebody else. And sometimes that can be a painful thing to do. It can be hard to do that sometimes, to exercise wisdom when you're interacting with somebody and you've got to address something that they're, that they're doing wrong. But that's what acting in meekness is. Hughes focuses on meekness as a gift from God when he talks about it. He says, but what about meekness or gentleness, apart from which there is no wisdom? Don't miss the significance of what he just said right there. Without meekness, there is no godly wisdom. Meekness is what separates godly wisdom from worldly wisdom. Hughes goes on to tell us that we can be confident about our ability to receive meekness when he says, this is within reach. In fact, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. We know it is possible because as Christians we are in Jesus. 
who urges us to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, meek, mild, and humble in heart. He promises that if we can conscientiously yoke ourselves to him, we will learn meekness and humility, and we will find rest for our souls. So now we understand how godly wisdom is exercised. So let's look at the characteristics of godly wisdom. We see them listed in verse 17. The first thing you'll notice is that these stand in direct opposition to the characteristics of worldly wisdom. The first is pure. It is directly opposed to the polluted, selfish, abhorrent, evil motivation of worldly wisdom, which is for our own selfish gain. Purity in godly wisdom is when we are sincerely motivated to apply the knowledge God gives us for the glory of God, for the education of others, but not for our own gain. The second trait is peaceable. One who is peaceable is not argumentatively or argumentative or constantly looking to quarrel. This is an area that all believers need to be careful about, lest we think that's not us. I'll give you an example. There are some of us who enjoy a drink, maybe a beer, every now and then. There are others that feel that alcohol should absolutely never be touched. This is not a point to fight about. If you are, if you are acting in meek, meekly and peacefully, this is not something you're going to fight about. You are not going to cause your brother to stumble, and you're not going to impose on your brother a standard that's not in Scripture. You find a way to say, I can live with where we are. Now, if it's something that can't be compromised on, if it's something that clearly is sin, is listed in Scripture, we don't take that attitude. But when it's, not, when it's one of those issues like that, we can do that. To be peaceable means that we do all we can to live in peace as we're instructed in Romans 12:18. The next characteristic is gentle. And gentleness is exemplified in Paul's commands to Titus. Starting in verse 1. Remind them, being the believers, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Biblical gentleness or meekness is obedience to God-ordained rulers and authorities and treats others with patience and kindness, understanding that it is only by the grace of God that we believe and have been saved. The goal of gentleness is to reflect the love of Christ. Next, we see open to reason. We see a great deal of this in politics today, right? I just threw that out there because I want to see who's still away. Sounds like about half of you. I'm grateful for that. But we do see this in politics. We see a lot of a lack of being open to reason. And I'm not just talking about the other side, guys. There are political issues on which we should never compromise. But gun control, immigration, um, tax initiative, those are areas that we need to be open to reason. To be open to reason doesn't mean you just lay down and say, okay, if that's what you want, we're going to go there. To be open to reason means that you are willing to listen to the other person's perspective and find the value in it and then articulate your opinion or your perspective in a way that helps them understand the value of what you have to say 
And as a result, you come to some sort of compromise. Remember, the opposite of open to reason is foolishness. Full of mercy and good fruits. Next, James says that godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. And Hughes does a good job, again, of articulating this. Mercy in biblical theology is not just compassion which results in pity and sympathy. It is compassion in action. We may teach the Bible and be viewed by everyone as fountains of wisdom, refreshing those around us with pithy sayings and sage advice. But if you are not full of mercy and good works, you are not wise. To be good of full, full of good fruits means to consistently live by the fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we are full of good fruits, people are going to like to see you coming. People want to hear what you have to say. And that will open doors for you to share the good news of the gospel with them. It will give you a chance to share godly wisdom. And finally, the last of the characteristics is impartial and sincere. He starts with purity. He ends with sincere. Sincere needs to be applied at every single one of these characteristics. But what he talks about here is those of us, that, and those of you with long memories probably remember quite well that James has addressed this topic before. Do you remember in verse 2? He gave us a very thorough tongue lashing about the way that we treat those who, uh, when, when we treat people based on their financial position or their or uh, something, however it might help us or however we might gain from that friendship, showing that partiality toward people that we think are better than other believers. He gave us a good thorough tongue lashing about it and told us that it's absolutely something we should not do and, in fact, that it's sinful. With all these characteristics, we must be sincere when we are being impartial. It is of no value to pretend to be impartial and to pretend to be nice to people. That's just basic good manners. In order for it to be legitimate, it must be sincere. We are called to be sincerely impartial, to sincerely love all fellow believers, and to treat them with the respect due a child of God. Now, as you noticed, each of these characteristics stands in a direct opposition to the characteristics of worldly wisdom. And the same is true of the manifestations or the fruits of godly wisdom. They also stand in stark contrast to the fruits or the manifestations of worldly wisdom. Instead of causing disorder and vile practices as worldly wisdom does, godly wisdom produces peace and righteousness. How are you doing there? As individuals, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but what kind of fruit are you producing? Are you demonstrating godly wisdom and humility? If so, according to God's word, you are producing a harvest of righteousness. So now we know what the characteristics of godly wisdom are. We know that it manifests itself in righteousness. Let's look at where godly wisdom comes from. James answers this question for us in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Godly wisdom comes from God. It is a gift he gives to all who ask him, all who seek it. That's why godly wisdom is pure. It comes directly from God, who is pure. Godly wisdom doesn't come from logic or deep studies of academic things. This is how you gather knowledge. Godly wisdom is a gift from God. 
And as I get ready to close, and yes, I do know it's very early, I want to answer our final question, how we acquire godly wisdom. As Joe read earlier, it's not something that we just ask once and we receive. Typically, there's an exception. We all know about Solomon, right? Solomon asked for wisdom. Why? So he could figure out how to make a whole bunch of money? Solomon asked for wisdom so that he might wisely govern the people of God. As Joe read, you've got to pursue wisdom. You've got to search for it as silver. You've got to search for it as something of extreme value to you. You gain godly wisdom when you spend time in the Word. When you spend time fellowshipping with other believers around the Word of God. When you sit under godly teaching. When you spend time in your Bible, both alone and with other brothers and sisters, growing, learning, digging. Godly wisdom doesn't come from coming to church once a week and listening to somebody stand up here and tell you about it. Godly wisdom is to be pursued. Godly wisdom requires effort. Godly wisdom is worth it. Pursue wisdom. Pursue it with your whole heart. Godly wisdom comes from spending time with God. So, as I said at the beginning, here at PRC, we teach the Word of God so it can be applied to our lives. Remember, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. If you apply wisdom in a way that advances yourself, you are exercising worldly wisdom, and that's a sin. And if that's true of you, you need to check yourself, stop denying the truth about your condition, and spend time in God's Word. Spend time praying, asking God to show you where you're exercising worldly wisdom. And you need to recognize it, and you need to flee from it. You need to mortify it. In contrast, we strive to exercise godly wisdom. Use the, the knowledge God has given you to His glory. Apply knowledge meekly, trusting Him to guide your steps, walking in His ways, using wisdom in keeping with the principles you learn from His Word, and you will exercise godly wisdom. Many of us fail at exercising godly wisdom. We fail in a whole lot of areas. That's why we need the grace of Jesus Christ. If you feel convicted by this message, that's the Holy Spirit revealing truth and convicting you of sin. If you want to know more about forgiveness, meet with Pastor Travis, meet with Harold, you can meet with me. We'll be happy to talk about those things with you. But you need to be honest with yourself. You need to know your condition of your heart. And the only way to do that is to be constantly checking, constantly comparing your actions against the Word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the knowledge and understanding that you give us. And Lord, I pray that you will encourage all of us, Lord, that you will drive us to spending time in your word. 
and that your word might be more than a collection of words on a page, Lord, but it might fill our hearts with joy, that it might, you might reveal the truth of your word to us, Lord, that we might know your ways, that we might live lives that glorify you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.